Let us pray. Lord God, when we open your word, we hear by the Holy Spirit, the same God who spoke over creation and created all things out of nothing by the speaking of his word. And you speak to us today. And so we humbly sit under your word, expecting, Lord, that all the beauty that we seek, all the truth that we so long to find, will become evident to us in new ways today as we listen to you speak for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We often like to think of figures from the Bible as role models, but if you've read the Bible long enough, you'll know that the truth is that half the time they're modeling not what we should do, but what we should not do. And today we're going to see another example of an episode of Abraham the human, not Abraham the hero. And honestly, to me, this is a good thing because that's where we all land too. We're all fallible sons and daughters of God who are saved by grace alone through faith alone, just like Abraham. And today in Genesis, we're going to look at a sweep of scriptures from 17 into 18 into 21. You don't have to worry about reading through all of 17. I'll take you through it and kind of set you up for the fulfillment of the promise, which we just heard read in Genesis 21. But what's even happening in that general area of Scripture? Well, in Genesis 17 through 18, we find a sequence of stories on the birth of Isaac. And this turns the world of Abraham and Sarah totally upside down. In Genesis 17, Abraham is told that he will father a son through Sarah, who is now 90 years old. And as Genesis 18 indicates, well beyond the possibility of childbearing. Abraham himself is 100 years old, as we just heard, and he responds to this revelation in Genesis 17 by attempting to reorganize the ridiculous so that it fits within the bounds of reason. How about my already existent son, Ishmael, he offers to the Lord in astonishment. And we really can't blame Abraham, when we consider that between Genesis 16 and 17, 13 years have passed. 13 years have passed since the birth of Ishmael from the surrogacy of Hagar. 13 years, it's a long time. And I would bet that Abraham and Sarah probably would bet their life that all the promises that God had been speaking to them were already in the midst of coming through to uh, Ishmael. But this is what humans do, isn't it? When the absurd comes into our midst, we rarely welcome it. We tend to rather tell the absurd to behave itself. As Oscar Wilde once said, the public is wonderfully tolerant. It forgives everything except for genius. Take, for example, the 1975 single Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. 
Now, here's a song that ranks number 17 on Rolling Stone's top 500 songs of all time. It's a song that's been certified diamond, which means that it's sold over 10 million copies in the U.S. alone. The precision of the performances is stunning. The quality of the recording, even for that time and in our time, is outstanding. To say that it was ahead of its time is a massive understatement. It's still ahead of our time. And yet what happened when Queen brought Bohemian Rhapsody to the record executives at EMI? What did they do? They rejected it. The reasonable reigned supreme over the seemingly ridiculous that day at EMI. And it's just an example of how reason makes a great contribution to philosophy but it makes a terrible metric for the arts. And in Abraham's case, a terrible method for theology. What was the problem at EMI with the single? Well, the label executives heard it and they insisted that a five minute and 55 second song could never possibly be played on the radio, could never be a hit. So many years later, 10 million copies sold. If, a, if Abraham were an A&R guy for EMI, he would probably not only have rejected God's plan for Isaac, he would have rejected Bohemian Rhapsody too. But we should probably give Abraham a break. I mean, you can just picture the guy sitting there in his nomadic attire, arguing with the Lord on some lonely avenue in the middle of the ancient Near East. God's like, hey, Abraham, bust out the cigars. You're going to have a baby at age 100 and Abraham, responding with all the emotion of Freddie Mercury, would say reflectively, Lord, is this the real life? <laughs> or, or is this just fantasy? I'm caught in a landslide, no escape from reality, to which the Lord would earnestly plead with Abraham, open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. But nevertheless, Abraham would continue to protest, I'm just a poor boy. And God at that point would say, whoa, whoa, this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> Let me stop. A poor boy. Abraham, you're a hundred years old. You're not a boy. And you're rich. Don't be absurd. And Abraham would be like, yes, absurd. That's the whole thing with the baby at a hundred, Lord. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And so in today's passage, what we'll see is that Abraham in Genesis 17 tries to mitigate the miraculous by suggesting that God's blessings should just go to his already born son rather than the miracle son, Isaac. It just makes more sense. And then we'll see in our sweep over Genesis 18 how Sarah eagerly listens at the door of the tent, eavesdropping in on absurdity and contemplating what life would look like on the other side of hopelessness. And, and lastly, of course, we'll get to the keeping of the promise by God when he delivers on that promise through the birth of Isaac and through the birth of Isaac seen through the lens of Jesus to us as well. So I invite you to turn to Genesis 17 in your Bibles. I'll be sweeping us through, so if you, if you feel like you can't follow along, no worries. But I'm going to start by reading at verse 15 to get us into the mix here. This is Genesis 17, verse 15. We're going to hear a bit of the promise that's going to be fulfilled in Genesis 21. It says this, And God said to Abraham, 
As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her. She will become nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Two things I want to talk about that happened in Genesis 17 that prepare us for the baby announcement, but also the fulfillment of the child coming in Genesis 21. And that's the expansion of God's covenant promises and the intensification of those promises. All of this comes before the promise is even given. The expansion of God's promise. What are we talking about? Well, in Genesis 12, verse 2, God tells Abraham that he's going to become a great nation. It's a good promise. Genesis 17, though, by the time we get there, in this zone of the text, Abraham goes from becoming just a great nation to what does it say in verses 4 and 5? A multitude of nations. God is expanding the scope of the covenant promises to Abraham. And not only that, it says in verses 6 and verse 16, both to Abraham and then to Sarah, that kings will come through Abraham. And this is an expansion, a topping up of the original amazing promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. But God doesn't just expand the promises. He intensifies them. He adds power to them. First, God presents himself in Genesis 17, verse 1, as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Now, the name El Shaddai occurs only five times in the whole Bible. And when it does, every time it does, the focus is always on a God who promises descendants. And not only that, a God who has the power to deliver on that promise. God is intensifying the promise, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Next, in Genesis 17, verse 5, God officially changes another name. This time, Abram, which means exalted father, is changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And so the intensification of God's name is matched by the intensification of Abraham's name to include a much more expansive promise. Another way it intensifies the covenant is in terms of duration and in terms of the nature of God's presence. Verse 7 says that Abraham will have an eternal covenant with God. It's not just a covenant, it's going to last forever. It's eternal. And this is the first time this has come up in the scriptures, that the covenant is eternal. This is huge news. And the Lord will be your God. You don't hear that in that way until right here in the scriptures. Names, duration, presence, everything is being expanded and intensified. And, and another thing that God says in verse 6, the final one I'll mention here, is I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now we think, yes, we've heard stuff like that in the Bible before. Only when we heard God say it to Adam, and when we heard God say it to Noah, it was in the form of a command, not a promise. 
Be fruitful and multiply, Adam. Be fruitful and multiply, Noah. What does God say here? I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you, says the Lord. All of this had to have sounded great to Abraham. And he, he, he hasn't received the mic drop moment yet that's coming up later on in verse in chapter 17. He would have thought this is fantastic. I've already got a covenant. Now it's even better. It's topped up. It's intensified. It's expanded. This is good news. I'm going to go tell Sarah. Right? But then it all goes off the rails quicker than an A&R session at EMI in 1975. Look at verse 16 and 17. The Lord says, I will bless Sarah. This is good news, right? Okay. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? What's going on here? First, Abraham falls on his face. And this is a reference to falling down in worship. Falling down before the Lord in reverence and in honor, not in hysterics. Abraham starts with reverence and then he attends to the ridiculous. That's, that's good. That's a good start, Abraham. And then comes the laugh. Abraham's laugh, though, when we hear it, it's not a laugh of amusement. It's a laugh of astonishment. The news is not too good to be true. The news is too bizarre to be believable. And so Abraham comes up with a nice, a nice natural strategy to pivot. He attempts to reorganize the ridiculous into something just much more reasonable. To put a pragmatic spin on God's providence. Abraham offers a better, more expedient plan. Just like he tried to do in chapter 16, right? Lord, how about Ishmael? Lord, how about my 13-year-old son? And does God take that? No. Look at verse 16. God responds straight away with the rejoinder, No, Sarah will be your wife, and you shall call your son's name Isaac. Now, any ancient Hebrew reader or hearer would have understood and smiled instantly at this. Why? Because they would have recognized that the name Isaac in Hebrew means he laughs. Abraham laughs, right? And then he tries to slide one by the Lord. And the Lord responds by turning his laughter into his son's name. And here's the point. God was asking Abraham to take a leap of faith. But Abraham was trying to turn that into a hop of faith connected to a harness of his own creation. Abraham was trying to fit God's weird promise within the bounds of something that, that he could imagine. Come on, Lord, let's get real. You can't have a six-minute single. We can cut out the whole opera part of Bohemian Rhapsody, get it down to three minutes and 30 seconds. That's much more reasonable. This sort of thinking is not Abraham coming to obedience on God's terms. This is Abraham coming to obedience on Abraham's terms. The hop of faith and the harness ropes of reason, those ensure that Abraham and, and, and that we are technically following God without assuming any of the additional risk or any of the additional ridiculousness. And it's right for us to ask at a point like this, 
Where is God calling you to trust Him, to take a leap of faith, but you're trying to to fool yourself into thinking that a hop in a harness will actually suffice as a stand-in for true, total surrender. And when it comes to the Bible, where are you tempted to bend revelation to fit within the bounds of reason as you see it because it demands some things of you that just seem outright ridiculous. It makes more sense to pivot. It makes more sense to reorganize. And then we have to ask ourselves, what would it look like if we just let those constraints go? If absurdity wasn't an impediment but was a launching pad for a real, risky, ridiculous leap of faith. Abraham comes to the limit of his imagination, to the limit of his intellect, and he laughs. But he's not the only one. Sarah also laughs. Look in Genesis 18. I'll take you through a sweep of this. The promise is now announced to Sarah, leading up to 21. What happens here? Well, If the focus in chapter 17 is on God expanding and intensifying the covenant and then Mike dropping the ridiculous into the midst of Abraham, chapter 18 is about the extravagance of the pronouncement and the feelings really of sobering vulnerability that would follow such a significant pronouncement on the person to whom it is pronounced. I'll show you what I mean. In verses 1 through 4, of chapter 18, we learn that the Lord appeared to Abraham through three messengers. And then there's this funny little thing in there. It says, Abraham invited them to have a morsel of bread. Come in, please, just have a morsel of bread. But what happens in this story is he doesn't provide them with a morsel of bread. He runs in the house and tells Sarah to prepare three seahs, which is about six gallons worth of the best wheat flour, and then he prepares the choice calf. This is, this is an extravagant meal for only three people. It indicates that something momentous is happening. Have you ever had one of those holidays where there's definitely people here who are the purveyors of this? You have seven people coming over for Christmas Eve. Seven. Somehow, you have enough food made to feed 125. The ins- I, I always wondered where my Nana got that from. She was in- must have been inspired by Abraham, right? What's more, the best wheat flour and the choice calf, if you look in the context of the Old Testament, these are like code words that the Israelites would have understood. Those words refer to the things that are given in the cereal offerings and the sacrificial offerings of Israel's Levitical cult. And so people who were reading this back then would have heard, Abraham didn't just provide a morsel of bread for dinner because the dinner guest was God. Extravagant meal, of course, leads to an extravagant reveal, which is actually the heart of the passage. And in verse 10, Sarah is told that she will bear a son. But listen to how she hears it. She's not told directly. She overhears it from outside of the conversation at the door of a tent. It says, Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And I love that expression. 
It reminds me of what we do when we come to Scripture. It's like we're listening at the door, longing to hear God speak into our lives. Things that will fundamentally change the way we look at the world and our neighbors and ourselves and our hope and our future. Sarah was listening at the tent door. And can you imagine the storm of emotions that she would have felt as she listened at the tent door? As hope that she had hoped to have put a lid on 13 years before just suddenly starts to reemerge in real time. She has no control over it. It's good news, but it's scary news. It's as exciting as it is intimidating. And as she continued to wrestle, what would it be like to see that this re-emerging hope, it doesn't always lead to happiness? And also to wrestle with the other side of that, that even though hope doesn't mean happiness always in the present, that this re-emerging hope would mean she's grasping on to something that's eternal an eternal covenant that goes on forever, that goes well beyond the temperament that she's in that day. Well, what can you do in that sort of situation? Well, she does what Abraham did. She laughs. And when God calls, the best part, when God calls her on it, she denies it in verse 15. Not a good thing to do to the omniscient, all-knowing God. And she says, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, the text says. And then God calls her on it and says, oh, but you did laugh. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even in speaking a word of denial of laughing, technically a lie, Sarah inadvertently pronounces the name of her future son, Isaac. And this is because the Hebrew verb for laugh sounds the same and is spelled the same as the Hebrew noun for laugh, Isaac. So it would have been like this if you translate it. Sarah literally says, I didn't, Isaac. To which the Lord says, no, but you did, Isaac. Laugh. When Abraham stands back up after falling down before the Lord, we wonder, is he going to be willing to take that leap? And then we turn to ourselves and we ask, are we? When Sarah steps away from eagerly listening to God's word and hope at the door of the tent, we wonder, is she going to be willing and able to step into this emotionally vulnerable place, into the place of unexpected motherhood? And then we ask, what will we do when the fear of vulnerability threatens to keep us from walking with courage and from walking with faith into seasons that don't come with guarantees of happiness, but that are anchored in God's hope. What will we do? On the one hand, how could we resist? On the other hand, that's a scary place to go. It's a scary place to go. Genesis 21, the promise comes to fruition. By the time we get to Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7, there's been a lot of laughter going around. Now laughter himself is born in the promise of Isaac. He arrives. And this brings the story really to us. Sarah's exclamation in verse 7 is really an invitation to us all. All who hear me, she says, will laugh over me, or a better translation is will laugh with me. We who come from the covenantal 
seeds of Abraham and Sarah laugh with those who laughed before us. I mean, Abraham laughs at the ridiculousness that comes beyond the bounds of reason. And, and Sarah laughs at absurdity beyond the bounds of hope. And we laugh, whether out of astonishment or absurdity or joy, as the mystery of the gospel comes into our midst and defies the limits and boundaries of human reason. If we try to reorganize the gospel, if we try to do what Abraham did, if we try to reorganize the gospel to behave more reasonably, all that we see is the foolishness of the cross, the ridiculousness of the resurrection, and the inconceivability of the incarnation. But when we fall to our face and then laugh out loud with a faith that's desperately seeking understanding, then we can cry out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith requires not less, but more than reason, because revelation exceeds reason's bounds. Faith requires a leap. But we can't leap if we're still holding on for dear life to the harness. And when God brings you to the edge of reason, to the precipice of the ridiculous, his intention is not for you to permanently set up camp at the chasm. There will be, and surely there have been in your lives, times when, like Sarah, you'll find yourself listening eagerly at the door of God's word, and what you will hear will shake you to the core in its sobering clarity, in its arresting conviction, in its absolute truth, and yes, sometimes humanly speaking, in its seeming absurdity. But it's at that moment, it's at that moment when God has pushed you himself beyond the bounds of reason that God wants us to break the constraints, unlock the harness, and brace yourself. Because after you've listened at the door with Sarah and after you've laughed in astonishment with Abraham, there's only one more thing you can do, and that is to leap, to leap by faith into the future hope that you have and drag it into the present by the power of Almighty God, to leap, to surrender, to hold nothing back, to leap, not to hop, not to hop, but to leap. His faithfulness will carry you across the chasm of reason's limit. And frankly, when we embrace the gospel that defies our expectations, we will be embraced by a God who eternally exceeds our expectations. The leap of faith is not a leap into an empty void. It's nothing less than a leap into the arms of Almighty God. And we bow. We bow with all the reverence of Abraham. And we listen at the door with all the eagerness of Sarah. And we laugh with all the absurd hope of the miracle child Isaac because we know that in the midst of our fierce and ever-present struggle, even if our miracle doesn't come in 13 years, even if our miracle doesn't come in 30 years, even if it's hundreds of years and we don't see our miracle come, actually it already has in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that our hope is not contingent on our present states of happiness or unhappiness. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his resurrection. That is our hope amidst all the changing emotions and seasons of life. The sting of sin and death inflicts us in the present. But make no mistake, God will have the last laugh. Let's pray. Lord, you've built us and wired us and created us in your image. You give us all sorts of emotions and creative impulses and the desire to worship you. We ask, Lord, that as we are brought to the precipice of absurdity with some of the things that we feel we could never leap from, you help us to take the leap of faith without holding ourselves back because we trust you, we want to know you, and we grab on to your hope in this present moment and for eternity. For that's the nature of your covenant and the nature of your promise. And it is the nature of our inheritance. Thanks be to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.